Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our true and living God, our creator, we pray now that you would give us conviction that you are the creator of all, the one to whom we owe our lives. And that knowing you as our creator in your word, uh, we will give you the thanks and the praise which is your due. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us to receive it with understanding and to change our thinking and our actions to conform to its truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the God who has revealed himself in the Son as Father, Son and Spirit, one God, has also revealed himself as the maker of all that is visible and invisible. This is what the scripture so clearly teaches. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the entirety of the universe. Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honour and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. This is what believers confess in the creed. We believe in one God, the maker of heaven and earth and of all that is seen and unseen, and this is where in our society the objections or the denials start, often expressed in the claim that somehow scientific explanations of, say, the origin of life or of certain natural phenomena have disproved the existence of God or made the creator an, in their terms, an unnecessary hypothesis. And this determination of our secular society to drive God from his creation does, I think, affect believers in the West like us. We live consuming a media which is awash with the absence of the true God. We're educated to believe you can understand the world and know how to live in it without any reference to its creator. Uh, we are now a society where public acknowledgement of God for his blessing is portrayed as distasteful. And the result, especially for urban Christians, is that our awareness of God as creator is weakened. It's almost as if believers in Jesus have a formal commitment to God as creator, a commitment though that's really just an extension, a corollary of our primary belief in Jesus. But God as creator is not something we're confident of in our own right, in its own right. And the result is often that our awe is diminished, our horror at the ingratitude of sin attenuated, our own thankfulness for all the good that he's bestowed on us reduced to an afterthought, formal and not heartfelt, and our witness and call for repentance dulled. Now my aim today is not to offer an extensive defence for belief in the creator, but rather to explore from scripture what it means to confess God as creator. What does that mean for our understanding of who God is and of who we are and of the, for the confidence that we can have in him? But I do want to start by addressing in our society what's the elephant in the room, the belief that non-belief in a creator God, the belief that matter is all there is, offers a better explanation of the world and so we can live well in this world ignoring its creator. You see... 
There are and have always been basically only two alternative answers to the question of why there is something, this world, this universe, and not nothing, to why there is this particular world and not nothing. On the one hand, you can say that matter, including energy and physical forces, is eternal, was always there and will always be there. On the other, that there is a creator who is non-material and outside this material world and who has brought all that is into being. Now, the notion that matter is in some sense eternal is actually very ancient. It's a feature of many pagan religions with their creation stories bringing the world into being from something that's already existed. And it's there in the idea that history is cyclical with the universe being consumed by fire and then reborn through fire over and over again. And so it's not a new idea, but it is one that's aggressively promoted in our society by philosophical materialists like many atheistic evolutionists, people who claim matter is all there is and that all there is can be explained in terms of the actions of material forces, chemical and electrical processes, inherent in matter. Now, even though this ancient philosophy claims today the mantle of scientific authority, it actually has and has always had intrinsic problems. That is, problems it can't escape. So firstly, and and so this is a kind of long introduction, but it's actually important because we actually need conviction. There's a kind of snow job going on that the only respectable thing to believe is that matter is all there is. But it's never particularly, never been particularly persuasive. So firstly, it can't prove its starting assumption that matter is all there is, which governs all their assessment of the evidence. You see, only believing in matter, they only allow material explanations for anything. And so any proof offered for matter being all there is, is entirely circular containing their conclusion in their starting point. See, this is a faith position. And you see that, say, for example, in Richard Dawkins asserting, as he has, without any evidence, that if there's life on other planets, if if it's there, then it must have come from evolution. Or the materialist responding to the overwhelming evidence that our universe is fine-tuned to allow life on Earth to flourish by postulating, again without any evidence, that this is just one of many possible universes and so this fine-tuning could have happened by chance. Now that's not science but faith-based speculation, which if thought through would actually only make the existence of our universe even more improbable and so even more likely to be the product of design for how fine-tuned would the parameters have to be to have a universe-generating machine? if such a thing existed. Secondly, materialism is so often selective with its treatment of the evidence. It doesn't engage seriously with the evidence of history, especially with Jesus and his resurrection, and it's often dismissive of the testimony of those who have experience of God or experience of the non-material. Thirdly, materialism requires matter to be self-organising, But that self-organisation is actually incapable of producing the information needed for even the simplest cell. And it requires almost infinite time for the accumulation of beneficial mutations, 
when the Big Bang tells you that the universe has a finite age. Materialism is actually profoundly anti-intuitive, defying human experience at every level. When, for example, in our experience do we ever see, without intelligent, purposeful input, the less organised becoming more organised, the information poor becoming information rich? How long, for example, would you need to leave a scrabble set with a baby before it's spelt out, feed me? Definitely too long for the baby, right? How often do you see building materials left on site become a house without intelligent input? Yet this is what we're being asked to believe, that highly complex, highly information-rich life has come about through the operation of blind, purposeless forces. And though it tries to hide it, in our wealthy world, materialism is actually very bleak. The universe we observe, said Richard Dawkins, has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. The materialist world is a world without hope, where you and I are chance products with no ultimate purpose and good and evil, as we call them, are arbitrary, just our preferences, with no power to bring justice where we have to deny our longing for the transcendent as an irrational accident or our desire for justice as an illusion, a cruel trick of the random forces that formed us. Often, when dealing with Christians, materialists think that disproving one particular interpretation of Genesis somehow proves their position, but that's a fundamental logical flaw. Showing your opponent's position is wrong is never showing that your own position is true. And materialism fails to recognise that no explanation of how something works can ever explain why there is something in the first place or proves or disproves personal agency. For example, explaining how an electric car works doesn't answer the question of why there's an electric car or whether it has arisen randomly or on purpose. Explaining genetic selection doesn't answer the question of why there are living organisms with genes in the first place, or prove or disprove intelligent involvement in their development. These are intrinsic problems with the claim that matter is all there is. They're never going to go away. Which is why materialism has, over the years, been neither persuasive nor attractive to many, to actually to most people. Whereas the universe and ourselves are actually what you would expect if the biblical story is true. If the God who reveals himself in his dealings with people and in scripture is as he says he is. I mean, what do we experience? Actually, we experience an ordered universe which shows the signs of intelligent design at many levels. Now, you may not be aware of some of the compelling evidence that comes from the fields of physics, astronomy, molecular biology and information studies. may not be aware because most of you experience materialism in biology classes. But there is evidence in all those fields for intelligent input, design or the universe being created. Now, a good and very readable introduction is The Case for a Creator by Lee Strobel. It's a good book. He'll present, for example, 
the evidence for the fine-tuning of the universe or the irreducible complexity of the cell and what that means. Oh, yes, and of the significance of the information held in the DNA of our cells and on which our cells depend to build the proteins that they require to function. Now, that latter is very significant because, as Stephen Meyer says, if you can't explain where the information comes from, you haven't explained life because it's the information that makes the molecules into something that actually functions. The origin of this DNA can't be explained by chance or chance and natural selection because natural selection presupposes cells that have DNA and can divide. And they can't be explained by self-organising chemical processes because that, in a sense, produces sameness. But information needs specified complexity. Only intelligence can account for information. Read the book, seek out the evidence and satisfy yourselves so you have conviction that the world in which you live is created. But the coherence of our experience with the biblical story actually goes beyond the evidence for order and design in the material creation. Uh, you see, what actually we, do we experience? Well, we experience an accessible and ordered creation with its own integrity, open to our understanding as those who have a role in stewarding creation. And that's what the Bible presents. Oh, and Scripture presents a picture of humanity that makes sense of ourselves, of our significance in the created world, of our longing for personal relationship, including relationship beyond ourselves. Oh yes, a picture of humanity that's frail and fails in rebellion against God, but a picture that in a sense resonates with our experience. It presents a world with moral laws as well as physical, where what you sow is what you reap, and there is hope for justice. And the explanatory power of scripture reaches beyond showing evidence of God's activity in the creation of the material world, but in history as well and in our individual lives. Scripture reveals a God who, while sustaining the order that allows us to go about our lives, is not contained in or constrained by that order and so at times can do things differently like part the Red Sea or heal a man born blind from birth or raise the dead. A God who can enter into personal relationship with us. The Bible story is in tune with our intuitions, our experience of life and the reality of the world. And it comes with a better and infinitely better hope, sustained not by some blind faith but by the actions of the living God in history. It is entirely reasonable to confess belief in a creator and you should not let your society kind of undermine or marginalise that. But what does it actually mean? What are we saying about God when we confess that he is the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen? Uh, now, as you saw last week, when you're hearing a doctrinal sermon, you're hearing lots of information. Uh, and that's because to teach a doctrine, you have to draw material from many parts of Scripture. And so more than usual, though I suspect it is usual, uh, the benefit will come from putting in your own work, reading and meditating on these Scriptures at home. That'll give you an opportunity to test the truthfulness of what I say, 
But more importantly, it'll give you time to think through and understand these scriptures and sense the greatness of our Creator. So what are we saying when we confess God as maker of heaven and earth? Well, firstly, we're saying that the Creator God is distinct from, not part of his creation. Now, Genesis 1, which you heard, makes that clear. Creation is by his word. What comes into being is not an emanation of his being. He's putting forth a certain part of his being into the world. There's no part of him mixed in with the material of creation. His life-giving power is mediated through his word. And the repetition that you heard, then God said, and it was so, emphasises the power of this word, that creation comes into being exactly as he commands. There's nothing lost by that mediation, yet creation remains distinct from God. You see this even in the creation of humanity in Genesis 2, where it says the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the uh, out of the dust from the ground and breathed into the breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. Now Hebrew deliberately uses a separate word for breath. It does not use the word for spirit there. Adam is animated by God. He is dependent on God for life from God, but it is life distinct from God. He's not animated by a share of God's spirit, by a part or a spark of the divine in each person. So while creation shows evidence of God's work and so of his nature, as Paul says, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen since the creation of the world, discerned in what's been made. While he says that, it's also clear God is not contained in his work. He is over and above his creation. And that's the second thing we're saying about God when we're confessing him as the creator of all things. We're saying he is transcendent over his creation. That's a way of saying God is not constrained by his creation, limited in any way in his being or in his achieving his purposes by his creating. There is no, for example, pre-existent matter that has an existence independent of God and which might be hostile or resistant to his will. He creates all things and he's not dependent on creation. He doesn't need it to cooperate with him, nor does it supply anything that he lacks. It manifests his being, but it does not change it. God's transcendence over his creation means that God is... Well, he's not going to be independently accessible through his creation. You will not find him in his creation unless he wills to reveal himself through it. He is not part of the material world, which is why the materialists are looking for a fiction when they're looking for evidence of God in the material world. They're looking for a God no Christian believes in. For our God is eternal, invisible spirit outside his creation. Now this lack of constraint and dependence is expressed in God's proclamation of his name in Exodus 3. You might remember there that Moses asked for a name that he could give to the Israelites and God replied to Moses, I am who I am or I will be who I will be, same Hebrew, 
this is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Now, we are not as conscious of the content of this name, which is repeated throughout the scriptures, because we translate it Lord, which is appropriate because this name is a proclamation of his sovereignty. But the name reminds us that it's a sovereignty grounded in the freedom and sufficiency of his being. You see, I am who I am is a declaration of absolute freedom. The living God is not dependent on anything or anyone for his being. No one and nothing can stop him from being who he is ever. I am who I am. So the Lord is free from the limitations of the material world, free from the limitations of being an embodied material being. He's free, for example, from the limits of time, the limits, the boundaries of time, which come into existence with creation. That's what we mean when we say God is eternal. When we say God's eternal, we're not saying that God has a beginning and he's just getting older and older and older, which, as some of us realise, can be miserable, right? Uh, It's saying he's not limited by time. He is the one who was and who is and is to come. He's present in all time. And he is free from all spatial limitation. You and I can't be present in two places at once because we're embodied beings. But God is present in all places, omnipresent. The creation of space, of physical dimensions, does not limit his being. Listen to Psalm 139. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. God is fully present everywhere. And God's omnipresence isn't a case, again, of him being spread more thinly over and more, over more and more places. No, it's he's wholly and immediately present in every place. And our creation creates no limits on his knowing either, as if our separate and distinct minds had created little holes in the universe that God could not access. He knows all. Even the hiddenness of our individual consciousness is not hidden from God. Psalm 139 begins, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up, you understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. (laughs) You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me, you have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It's lofty and I am unable to reach it. And God doesn't have to go searching it out. He knows it. As the author of Hebrews says, no creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now all of this, you know, talking of God's eternity, his omnipresence, his omniscience, they're the big words for it may seem a little abstract. 
Or let me say, if, if you are somebody who don't believe in God or, or don't know God, may actually seem threatening if you want to keep God out of your life. But if you're at peace with your creator, God being who he is, I am who I am, is actually good. Think about it. God is free and that means he freely relates to us. He doesn't have to. He doesn't need us. We don't add anything to him. And that means that if he relates to us, if he makes himself known to us, it's because he has freely chosen to make himself known to us, to draw us into relationship with himself. Now, that is amazing condescension. And you can actually be confident that what he makes known, he won't withdraw. He wills to make himself known. Oh, and space and time are no limit to him. And, and that means that he is always present to hear and help. And we're not just getting a little bit of his attention or a little bit of his help. He is immediately present in his entirety in every place. There's no place where we are beyond his help. Now, we might feel, you know, God's close when, in, when we're in our familiar settings, but we have to know God is no less close when all around us is unfamiliar or, or threatening, like when we're lying on that hospital bed or when we feel out of place and alone where you've moved to live or study in another country. If you're going to serve God in the world, you need to remember that God is there. Oh, and yes, there is no time where we are beyond his help, even the time of our death. And our Lord tells us that God knowing us is actually the basis for Christian prayer. We don't pray like the pagans, he says, because our Father knows what we need before we ask. And isn't it a comfort to know he knows, especially when we're struggling to put our thoughts and emotions into words. Our transcendent creator is never absent, never weary, never unable, never ignorant. And the third thing we're confessing when we confess that God is the creator of all things is that he is sovereign over his creation. Now, we'll talk more about this next week, Lord willing, when we consider God as almighty. But creating all that is means that actually our God has no rivals, as we see in Genesis 1. There's no competition, no struggle, no frustration of his purpose. Creation is all, verse 31, very good, conforming to his will, expressed in his word and fit for the purpose he intends. And making humanity in his image and entrusting rule to them is not creating a rival, that's a tangible sign to the whole creation of the rule of the invisible God through his visible vice regents. Creation places no limits on his power. As the psalmist says, I know that the Lord is great. Our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever pleases him in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all the depths. Whatever pleases him. We're constantly trying to put limits on our God, but scripture knows none. He always is as he chooses to be and all serves his purpose. And we're confessing that the creator God is also the God 
in confessing that he's created all things, he's the God who sustains all things. Having created all that is, Scripture teaches he continues to sustain life. It isn't set and forget. He doesn't wind up the machine and walk away because it's too much bother and grief or he just gets tired of it. Psalm 104 is a wonderful psalm that speaks of God's continuing care for his creation and the good he provides for us in creation. A few verses. He, God, causes the springs to gush into the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They supply water for every wild beast. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky live beside the springs. They make their voices heard among the foliage. He waters the mountains from his palace. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of your labour. He causes grass to grow for the livestock and provides crops for man to cultivate, producing food from the earth, wine that makes the human hearts glad, making his face shine with oil and bread that sustains human hearts. And again, towards the end of the psalm, all of these, and he's listed all these creatures, (coughs) wait for you to give them their food at the right time. When you give it to them, they gather it. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your breath, your spirit, they are created and you renew the surface of the ground. Life, our lives, are dependent on God's continuing activity in the world that he has made. And, of course, that is what our Lord taught, Sermon on the Mount. Our Lord says it's God, the Father, causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. And he continues that it's the Father who feeds the birds of the air, the birds of the sky. And, yes, it's the Father who clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow. Our lives are dependent on our God's continuing to sustain them, on his continuing provision. And our Lord says creation tells us he is more than able to do that. He is the source of the good and abundant life we have and we can rely on him. And life itself, I hope you know, is such a rich wonder, isn't it? To see the wonder of Colours, the rainbow, the flowers in the garden, to taste and the pleasure of that, to touch, say, a baby's skin. Life is so rich to run and jump to know the joy of human intimacy and we are completely dependent on the living God for this good gift and its continuation. That complete dependence on God for life and the course of our lives is expressed by Paul, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Now that is a verse worth meditating on. From him, through him, to him are all things. When we think of the wonder of life, its vastness, its rich variety, its goodness that each one of us can know, God our creator deserves both our awe and our thanks. And yes, in our confession, we confess that God is the creator, the maker of all things. All, so all, are subject to him. And all things includes, for example, natural forces, 
the rising of the sun, the coming of the storm, the movement of the wind, all depend on him and are subject to him. He sustains, as we see in Genesis 8, the regularity of nature because he is a good God, a God of order. But he can also work wonders because he is not limited by the regularity he creates and sustains. When considering events, you see, it's actually inadequate to stop with the explanation of what we call secondary causes, the material causes of something. So, for example, you haven't exhausted the significance of the sun rising when you explain that the world has undergone another complete rotation on its axis. Significance is, is that God is sustaining our lives and sustaining our world. We should acknowledge his hand at work in the world in all things, even if we're unable to discern his particular purpose in any specific event. Now, we're going to speak more of that next week, for God's almighty power is seen in our world in his exercising both judgment and mercy, and we're going to think about that next week. Oh, and as the maker of all things, he is also the maker of spiritual beings, beings invisible to us, but which scripture clearly teaches exists. And so, for example, take the devil, Genesis 3.1, the serpent. Uh, There's the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And that serpent's identified with the devil in Revelation 12. God's made all spiritual beings, angels, are ministering spirits, God's created servants. He makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. Made by him, all these spirits are subject to him. Now, we may not think this important, but if we lived in an animist culture, as some of our indigenous people do, and see the world, see your land as populated by spirits who could threaten you and with whom you must keep on good terms... It's important to know that God has created them. If you think the universe is populated by spiritual powers who can interfere with the course of your life, it's important to know God has created all things. important to know that the creator God is the only God and the God who rules over his creation. And so he is the only God we need to know and be at peace with if we are to live securely because at peace with him We are at peace in his world. Now, creation doesn't just tell us about God. Creation also gives us insight into ourselves. So just three thoughts to to think about. In a sense, they're just teasers to get your mind thinking. But here they go, three things. Firstly, creation by a creator who is personal gives us the foundation of what is reckoned so important in our society gives us the foundation of our identity. The starting point for our identity is recognising that we are creatures. Our lives are gift with the limitations of embodiment that we cannot free ourselves of. We are creatures. But as creatures, we are also finite persons made for relationship where the personal is at the centre of the universe, not at the margins, just subject to material processes, at the centre of the universe. Because the living God who sustains all things is personal, who speaks, who creates, who orders, we are made for a relationship with him. That's the starting point of our identity. And creation also gives us the foundation 
of the biblical understanding of wisdom, which is the key to a life of flourishing. Remember it says, the fear of the Lord, that trusting awe of God is the beginning of wisdom. Because to live in the fear of the Lord is actually to recognise reality. The Lord's continuing engagement with his word, his might, and his commitment to sustain his moral order in the world he has made. Oh, and the third thing creation helps us understand is our sin. It teaches us to recognise sin as death and sin as folly and to see the horror of idolatry. It's to creation Paul turns to help us see the reality of our rebellion against God. He says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. And remember that? Yeah, modern people think clearly seen. And because in a sense they've had the wool pulled over their eyes by strident materialism, they hesitate here. But it's actually true. It is clear to see in creation. But God is, and we can understand something of his nature through what has been made. As a result, he says, people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not glorify God or show gratitude. And that's the first thing. Creation exposes our sin as thankless. The living God has given us our life and every good thing, He deserves our thanks and our acknowledgement of his kindness and our dependence on him. And to fail to do so is sin. Sin is thanklessness. Oh, yeah, and sin is foolish. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals and reptiles. See, what have we done in our sin? We've exchanged the infinite for the finite, the creator for the creature, one who has life and can give life because he is life in himself for those who are lifeless, who cannot sustain themselves in life. We've exchanged one who has authority and power to enact his judgments for those things that are powerless. It is foolish to trust and worship created things, the product of our own imagination. And just think in our own day, people put their trust in money, give their loyalty to money, as opposed to the living God who has all things in the power of his word. And because creation exposes our sin, creation is also part of the gospel. This is Paul speaking to the Athenians. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything. And he did this and he rules history so that we would seek him and find him. Creation is part of the gospel because to be able to know the creator, to be freed from the grip of dead idols, to be able to know one who sustains our life and who is always present, able, always able to hear and help, to know one who always lives 
and who always has the power to keep his promises, to know the creator is good news in itself. And it's part of the gospel because, well, creation is the foundation of the call to repentance. You see, we should turn away from ignorance of God and believing lies about God who is the source of our lives and all the good we enjoy. We should be listening to him, trusting him, for he can do all he says. And giving him our thanks and praise is right and it's wrong and destructive and deadly not to. Creation is the foundation of the call to repentance and of the conviction that all need to hear the gospel. And that's one of the reasons why we should resist the pressure of our society to empty our confession of God as our creator of conviction. That lack of conviction or confidence in our God, Father, Son and Spirit as creator and sustainer of all actually can lead to us blunting our call to repentance, undermining our conviction that all need to repent for all have their life from God, undermine our sense that the gospel should go to all the world because our God is the creator of heaven and earth. We believe. We believe in one God, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. That belief should show in conviction, conviction of the folly and ingratitude of our sin, conviction of the rightness of the gospel call to repent, repentance because all will meet their creator. We will meet our creator. We cannot hide from him and he is the one in whom all can find life. So our belief should show in conviction and it should show in confidence in our transcendent, unlimited God. So we should repent of the timidity of not trusting him as he deserves, which comes from a small view of God. We should have confidence that our transcendent creator can keep and care for us as our Lord says, provide for all we need. Confidence that he can keep us in all things eternally. For there's no power in heaven and earth who can resist God. Oh, and that belief should show in praise and thanks. We ought to repent of ingratitude or too little thankfulness for the good lives he's given us. Living in the truth and resisting the pressure to remove God from our consciousness will be shown and strengthened by giving thanks. It's good to give thanks to the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And so I hope thankfulness is a feature of your daily life, giving thanks at meals for his provision, not just as a formula but actually for the wonder of taste, for for the strengthening of our bodies, for that delicious feeling of being full for clear and refreshing water that you can have from a tap. Oh, giving thanks for shelter. Yeah, isn't it good to lie in bed at night, a cold night, and listen to the rain? That's a good. Oh, giving thanks for the good of life, for the way we're made to enjoy this good world. You know, for sight, which allows us to see the smile on the face of your baby. Right For sound, the sound of your friend's voice. The life he's given us is good. 
Oh, giving thanks for the activities of our bodies, whether it's on the soccer field or on the bike or in the garden. Giving thanks for the creatures that enrich our lives, the birds you hear as you walk out the door, the dog you pat. All this is his gift. Giving thanks that we've been made to know him and be known by him, the maker of heaven and earth. We should be people who even now are joining our praise to the praise of heaven. Our Lord and God, you are worthy, they cry in heaven, to receive glory and honour and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and they were created. And that should be our thanksgiving and praise too. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that we would have confidence that you are the creator of heaven and earth and all things. And that having that confidence, we would start to get an inkling of your extraordinary power, of your eternity, of your capacity to be with us always in all your fullness. And Father, we pray that knowing that you are the one who give us life and sustain our lives and the lives of all, we pray that we would be full of thankfulness Thankfulness to you, our good God, for your extraordinary gift. And we pray, gracious Father, that knowing your gift, we would turn away from ingratitude and from the folly of putting our trust in our in created things to trust you only through trusting your Son. And we pray this in his name. Amen.